Welcome to Story Shaped, the podcast about the stories that shape us and have the power to change the world. I'm Susan Cahill, debut children's author, and my co-host is the seasoned and wonderful children's author Sinead O'Hart. Together, we'll be taking you through some deep dives into the books that shaped us and interviewing other writers about their favourite and most influential stories. We hope you'll enjoy Story Shaped. Hello, Story Shape listeners. It's another Story Shape day, and we've got another magical Story Shape guest in the hot seat today. Alice Ross, who is author of the fast-paced, fantastical fantasy adventure The Nowhere Thief, which is her debut novel released earlier this year in March. Alice's previous life was as a very grown-up journalist for the Financial Times, writing about sustainable investments, and her non-fiction book is called Investing to Save the Planet, which came out in 2020. Alice has said, and I'm quoting from Alice, that she spent most of her career as a journalist at the Financial Times, which is one way of telling stories, and is now writing fantasy, which is a different way of telling stories, but with arguably more magic involved. So stories have been the thread that runs through Alice's career. And so I want to chat to her about how it feels to be a freshly fledged children's author, where she got the inspiration for the kaleidoscope, and I use that word on purpose, the kaleidoscope of other worlds that feature in it, and what literary siblings her brilliant characters, Elspeth and Idris, might have. I loved The Nowhere Thief, a novel about finding your place and purpose, the consequences of your actions on the planet, and also some good old-fashioned adventure. I'm also really delighted to be chatting to Alice today because we're both part of a band of merry debut children's authors. And this is a shout out to the Debut 2023 group, which is a kind of Twitter support group for all of us who are releasing our debut novels this year. Although I've had to slink off to the Debut 24 group as my novel's being pushed into next year. But the Debut 23 group can't get rid of me that easily because it's full of the loveliest, most supportest and funniest people of which Alice is one. So welcome, Alice. We're delighted to be chatting to you today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and I should say that Sinead can't make it, unfortunately, but I get Alice all to myself. So I'm really happy about that. Um, Alice, can we start off with the question that we ask everybody, which is, Alice Ross, are you story shaped? Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, stories just played such a big part of my childhood. I, you know, I read a huge amount when I was little. Um, I know not not all writers do read a huge amount necessarily when they're little. Um, I didn't write actually when I was little. I wasn't one of those writers that was like, oh, I always was writing, you know, wrote my first novel when I was eight and it was about, you know, some animals. But I, I just, I never did that actually. I didn't really write until I was in my twenties, but I did always read. So I always had a book on the go. Um, do you remember, yeah. do you remember the first stories that you encountered, the first stories that had an impact on you? whether they were books or whether they were stories that were told to you or um, or kind of stories that were in the ether? What was your first encounter yeah. with stories? I mean, I can't, so apparently my mum says that I learned to read when I was two, which having wow. had my own children seems completely insane now. Like I remember looking <laughs> at them when I was two and being like, no, can't be right. Like, But um, apparently I did. And so we, we were living in Ireland at the time and oh. um, used to we would go on our little walk to the supermarket and apparently she used to say to me did I want an ice cream or did I want a Mr Man book 
and I usually picked a Mr. Man book apparently and then she would you know push me back in my pushchair and I would have finished the Mr. Man book by the time we got home um so I don't remember any of that but I guess that would have been my first experience of stories um so yeah so then I was I was really shy as a child and I used to apparently go to birthday parties and just hide under the table and read a book and everyone else thought that was quite weird um which it was but again I don't really remember doing that now um but uh yeah so in terms of the first stories I remember um you know I was looking through some old uh some children's books that I used to read that are um I'm actually staying at my mum's at the moment and um she's kept all of my children's books on a bookshelf not all of them, which I'll come back to later, uh, which is the point of annoyance for me. I was way <laughs> too generous when I was older, lending out some of my oh, favourite. Oh no, never did that. I, never, I forgot who I lent them to. I never got them back. You know the original editions that I used to have. Um, so that's very upsetting. But um, anyway, but looking at what was there on the bookshelf helped me to remember some of the books that I was really, really into for whatever reason. And I, I mean, I read. There's all sort of the usual suspects there. Like mm. there's all the C.S. Lewis. There's like. Roald Dahl, there's Laura Ingalls Wilder. Um, I was also into like Mallory Towers. I read Ramona and Beezus books. I'd say loads of series, but none of those ones that I just mentioned necessarily had a huge impact on me. Um, but there was one that I remembered as being the first book that ever made me cry. Ah. Um, I don't remember how old I was. Um, and I mentioned it to my mum to see if she remembered, but she didn't. But I remember we'd been on a of holiday somewhere and we were in the car and I was reading it in the car and it was nighttime and we as I finished the book we drove into our drive and I I finished it and I just started crying so much I just couldn't stop crying and I remember this really really clearly and the book it wasn't even a sad book as such the book was Gobelino the witch's cat um which by Ursula Moray Williams and it's about it's about a cat who is born as a witch's cat and he has this older sister, um, her name's Sutika, and, and he doesn't want to be a witch's cat. He wants to have a family. He just wants to be basically a normal cat. And, and he's got one white paw, doesn't he? Which makes yeah, him yeah, like, exactly. yeah. And, um, and, the, and it actually occurred to me that the book had, is quite similar to um, Charmed Life in a way. And I know mm. you guys are to Charmed Life and I absolutely love it as well. Um, but in that book, you've got the sort of the slightly innocent um, younger sibling, you know, cat, and then the sort of the slightly evil old, well, very evil, in the case of Gwendolyn, older sister, who has all the magic and is much more ruthless. And, you know, the younger sibling just wants to be normal. And it's actually a really, I wonder if Diana Winger so read this book, because I, I think it came out before Charmed, Charmed Life. Um, but it's a very similar dynamic where Gobelino really doesn't want to be a witch's cat he just wants to be normal and his older sister Sutika has all of the you know the magic and the the desire to succeed but in the end she's not as evil as Gwendolyn because she does end up saving him and she strip she's I think she's like embarrassed of him that he's you know so useless at being a witch's cat and she strips him of his magic and I think maybe she thinks it's a punishment but that's exactly what he wanted and uh, he falls into a river and nearly drowns and then he gets fished out by the family that he first went to and he realizes that he's just a normal cat and it's just and that's how it ends it ends you know with this thing saying that they're all going to grow up and and he, he's always going to be a, a family cat by the hearth and he's happy and he's found his home and he's found oh. his place in life and 
I don't know, it just really hit home for some reason. I just really, really cried and cried. <laughs> That's so interesting. It's making me think of a lot of things. Um, and I I remember Gobelina, the Witch, which is cat really clearly from my childhood as well. I didn't encounter it as a novel. I encountered it in, um, I don't know if you remember, that there was a kind of Partworks magazine called Storyteller. No, no. Have you ever encountered that? It was... The big, I think it had the biggest impact on my kind of story shaped life and it came out fortnightly and it was uh, a magazine of stories, ex- like original stories and extracts from existing novels. And it had a cassette tape and you listen to the cassette tape and you like turned the page. It was a bing and you turned the pages and the first story was the first chapter of Gobelina, the Witch's Cat. And I think that's how I learned to read. And I remember, I still remember. So uh, there must be something very visceral about Gobelino because I remember that first chapter really viscerally when Gobelino goes to that family and it's, it seems like the perfect family for him. And he's like, in, within the first two pages, he's found his home, but then it all goes wrong because um, it's a, like there's goblins that come along and mess everything up. Um, mm-hmm. And then he's he's set off on his adventures. Um, but I'm wondering if you and, and as you say that he finds his home and he finds his place at the end. And when I read the Nowhere Thief, I thought that was a major theme. A major theme was finding your purpose and finding your place and yeah, finding your place in the world. And I'm wondering if if that is coming from that deep emotional reaction that you had to it, or what was it about Gabellino that that spoke to you so much that made you cry and cry and cry yeah I mean yeah no I love that theory I mean it, that it could well be that it has had an effect or or that there was just something in me that that is drawn to that kind of feeling yeah. anyway and so it recognized it in that book and then I ended up writing it in in my own book um yeah I don't know I mean I mean mostly I've thought of the influences on on my writing as as almost exclusively coming from Diana Wynne Jones various of her books that I can certainly talk about here but but yeah there is there is also that yeah that really strong emotional side of coming home maybe feeling feeling left out or feeling a bit different you know I certainly had that as a child um and then this idea but but you know I had a very happy stable home life so there wasn't anything like there wasn't any personal reason for me to feel that I was yearning for that as such but um but yeah I don't know something about people feeling sad or left out and then finding finding their place finding their people yeah yeah it does I do feel it quite strongly so yeah mm. and I guess like for a lot of bookish children they feel and I've certainly felt like this that other people don't share the kind of intensity of the bookish love that you have and maybe that's yeah. one thing that marks you as different yeah which is people. yeah and I think <laughs> I was thinking about this like I feel like Diana Wynne Jones, and we should talk about her because I keep <laughs> keep mentioning her. Yeah, let's get um, her. Let's let's get it. Yeah, let's, let's just let's just start dive straight into Diana um, Wynne Jones. <laughs> but um, I feel like so many children's authors writing now mm-hmm. are saying how much they loved her books. Um, you know, Catherine Rondell did a yeah. podcast the other day. You guys have done one. M- many people say that they absolutely love her. Many people in publishing. Um, and the weird thing is, when I was when I was growing up, I didn't know anyone else that read her books. Me neither. And, and I know. Ne- and then when I started recommending her to my friends when I got older, I think I was at university when I lent out most of my Diana Wynne Jones books to people. They were like, "Oh yeah, yeah, I'll take a look." Uh, but none of them had heard of her, and I don't 
I don't feel like anyone else had the sort of the pure love for her books that I did. And then I thought, is it is it that if you've read Diana Wynne Jones books when you're younger, you're more likely to go on to be a children's author? <laughs> or is it like is the cause and effect the other way around? I don't know. But there definitely seems to be a very strong correlation between reading and having any awareness of Diana Wynne Jones books and actually being a children's author as a grown up. Yeah, that's really interesting. And yeah, there does seem to be this kind of resurgence of interest in Diana Wynne-Jones, because I remember as a child when I was reading her, like her books were in the library, the local library. So that's where I found them. But no one else was reading them. No one was talking about them. It felt like my private thing almost. Yeah, exactly. But maybe they were just like shaping us that whole time. And Mm -hmm. and now that's why we're writers and the people that didn't read them on. I don't know. (laughs) Do you remember the first Diana Wynne-Jones book you read? I don't remember the first one. I mean, I, I, I read, I just really hoovered so many of them up. Um, I mean, I, I did love Charmed Life. I, I really loved the lives of Christopher Chant, mm. which is also in that series. And it's about, it's, it's written, it takes place before Charmed Life, but it was written after Charmed Life. Um, and you can see some of, I was thinking about the biggest influences on the Nowhere Thief, because I was conscious that they were some of, some of the ideas were coming from ideas from Diana Wynne Jones or, you know, things that had influenced me or stayed with me. And one of them was from the lives of Christopher Chant, where he, so he has this weird power. He actually, at the beginning of the book, he thinks he is just dreaming and then he realizes it's real. Mm-hmm. But basically when he goes to sleep at night, he then gets up, he thinks in a dream and essentially goes through some sort of portal to these other worlds. And there's also this concept, which I have in, my book which many people actually have in in portal fantasies you have mm-hmm. it in the magician's nephew of this kind of place between yeah. the world like in the, magician, in the magician's nephew you have the the sort of the woods with the ponds and when mm-hmm. you jump into the pond you're like jumping into another world and in the lives of christopher chant it's this sort of very vague like rocky mountain yeah. or something yeah. to climb over and then he goes down into a valley and each valley leads him to a different world um and he is he I mean it kind of turns out that well, I don't know if this is giving too much of a spoiler for the book is it okay to talk about it I mean it was a long time ago yeah um, I think we're, we're okay with spoilers yeah. <laughs> for existing books um, yeah. as long as it's not um, a spoiler for your book no 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 not for my book no yeah, um, for, but for, for Christopher Chan I think we can we can if if you want to if you haven't read Christopher Lives of Christopher Chan yes, and you don't want a spoiler skip over the next few few minutes otherwise <laughs> join us for spoilers yeah but it turns out he meets someone that is just sort of asking him to carry parcels around for no particular reason. And he, or his, you know, his uncle asks him to do it, like as if it's just doing a favor. And he basically finds out towards the end of the book that he's been trading illegal um, things for this uh, terrible organization. And he's, you know, he's essentially an illegal trader. Yeah, it's um, such a shocking revelation, I remember. I know, I know. Yeah, especially that, yeah. I, I won't give too much away here, but the fishy, when he, he remembers the oh, fishy smell of the parcels. Well, yeah, and I remember going, oh yeah, my okay, God, that's horrendous, that's no. okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're, yeah, we're like, like, yeah, very visceral, isn't it? Like yeah. he self thinks about the fishy smell and it makes him feel really sick and he suddenly realizes oh but um you know obviously there's some some similarities there in that Elspeth is is uh she isn't trading herself but eventually she meets um you know the family of traders mm-hmm. say too much about the connection yeah. but, um, but when she starts out she is a thief she is going into and I mean we yeah. find this out in the first few pages but she's going into other worlds and she's stealing things yeah um, yeah, yeah. 
which is um which is brilliant concept yeah. and yeah and i can i can see the, the the kind of the 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 threads back and the links back to something like the lives of christopher chance yeah um and then the other one i think and you don't hear people talk about this book that much i don't think that she wrote which i think influenced my book is the homeward bounders um you know i don't think that's one i've read tell us about that one you've got to read it you have to read it yes no it's amazing it's oh and it's anyway it's this boy called jamie and he uh he also ends up going and accidentally going he accidentally discovers this secret place he's not supposed to discover and he discovers these weird people I think they're supposed to be um they're supposed to be magical in some way I can't remember what what kind of mystical being they are but it turns out that our world and all of the other worlds around it are just they're playing a game with our worlds basically they're rolling dice and they're like playing one of those I can't remember what they're called you know those like like risk or something mm, yeah. where you where you can invade other countries or you can you know like I can't, they have a name these kind of table or like tabletop I don't know what they're called either yeah but but you know there will be listeners shouting at us yeah probably yeah but you're essentially world building yeah. and you're having fights with each other and they're doing that but they're doing that with our world and with all of the other related worlds and oh, he's brilliant. seen them doing it he's not allowed to see them do it so as a result they for some reason they don't they I remember there's this really cold moment where he's like stuck in stasis and they're just discussing what to do with him and they're like well we could just erase him like erase him from history as if he had never existed and he's kind of there thinking no no and then for whatever reason due to negotiating they're negotiating about his life very coldly they say oh we're just gonna like throw him out and be a homeward bounder and what that means is he has to travel through all the other worlds constantly and he never knows when he's going to get sucked through. Uh, He can't control it. And all of the worlds are totally different. And along the way, he meets some people he knows and he keeps going. And the idea is that he can never return home. He's not allowed to return home. Oh, that's brilliant. And then at the end, there's, I mean, given that you haven't read it, I'm not going to tell you what happens at the end. it's, (laughs) It's really, it's, oh, it's very emotional and, yeah, it's quite overwhelming at the end what happens. Okay. Um, Diana Wynne Jones does that brilliantly. And what, like, as you were talking about that, like that scene where he's frozen and they're debating coldly about what to do with him, mm-hmm. it just made, makes me think about Diana Wynne Jones that there's such real peril in her books. Like, there's yeah. real, real danger. There's death. There's, like, she doesn't sugarcoat anything for, for children, no. but she no. presents it in a really understandable way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, characters can definitely get killed off for sure. Um, yeah, it's 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 hard to know where to draw the line sometimes in terms of the darkness. Like when I my original version of the Nowhere Thief was darker, I would say actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a particular world where where there were these like monster like creatures and and it was. But then I think actually the the version that I replaced it with um, where they're in this like hostile scholar world mm. where there are these sort of hooded people but we never see their faces it's very and sinister somehow it's more sinister actually than the slightly you know what what I had originally so I think it is it is probably better but um yeah it's it's interesting knowing where to draw the line when you're writing mm-hmm. yeah I think I've had that issue with my book as well in terms of how villainous do you make your villain Mm, um, yeah. and I, I've had like no that's too that's too dark that's not dark yeah. enough <laughs> I can't like, oh, get it right <laughs> yeah <laughs> what do you want from me um that's, you could say that generally to the publishing industry yeah. um but um 
uh yeah i mean i had that as well like with with my kind of villain racine mm-hmm. um i do i don't i don't really like people being sort of cartoon villainish like i i like to think about why is the villain doing what they're doing or yeah. you know what motivated them and i don't know but then some people don't like that they're like oh just make the villain just evil but i i just i do find that i don't know a bit from a psychological sort of character point of view i find that a bit a bit dull just to have someone just be purely evil for like yeah because even um, some like Gwendolyn who's kind of purely evil but she's also such a brilliantly rounded character and you can kind of identify with her in ways and you, you kind of you're fascinated by her um, yeah she's not just a kind of cardboard cutout villain even though she yeah, is so. like pretty bad she's she's pretty bad <laughs> <laughs> and you know she does like try to kill her brother yeah um, but but um but you can also imagine meeting someone like Gwendolyn mm-hmm. like you know everyone That's went to thing with someone who was a bit like her albeit you know you wouldn't have expected the depths of the evilness to go that far and hopefully didn't with anyone that we went to school with um but yeah um and and just sorry just coming back to the Homeward Bounders the, yeah. the reason that it's linked to my book is that he he realizes as he's going through all of these different worlds that they tend to be related um like there's there's this one point where he is going through a series of worlds and he says he realizes that the the game players must have been having a war or something or they must have been having a series of wars and every world that he goes to is more and more desolate more and more uh. you know, and I, I just like this idea of things getting incrementally mm-hmm. more extreme as you went through and you know you have that idea with with the series in the nowhere thief where yeah series of like hostile technology worlds and some of them are like not too bad and to you know much more extreme version um and I I think that probably came from the Homeward Founders it's hard to know sometimes where ideas come because I wanted to ask you about that because I think you've done something really interesting in the Nowhere Thief with those those series with the idea of hostile technology and hostile nature and hostile scholars and I haven't seen something like that before so I wanted Mm. to yeah I wanted to ask where where the spark for for those like as a reader it makes you think oh where where's our world placed in that what's the mm. like and and we don't see too much about the because I think there's also the beneficial or the the beneficent uh so, benevolence yeah benevolence um, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's the word <laughs> but you know um, I wasn't so interested in in those worlds um, but they're not as interesting <laughs> yeah yeah I definitely spent a lot more time in in the dark worlds um, yeah is, I don't know it's just more fun isn't it <laughs> absolutely um so so Diana is I mean I think we'll probably come back to Diana Wynne Jones but any other Diana Wynne Jones that you want to throw into the mix here before because I wanted I wanted to um ask you about like when you started to have the kind of desire to write your own mm. stories and um, your own series of worlds yeah I mean so I mean, and was that Diana Wynne Jones? Did she? No, it it, it came up very. It was really interesting. It came up really subconsciously. So I, so after after uni, I was sort of drifting about. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, and um, but but I did. I did know that I wanted to write. So I was trying to write, uh, you know, an adult novel basically. Um, you know, I had some weird ideas. (laughs) I, I remember I spent a really long time writing 
a book when I was about 23 or 24 about, and the idea was that everyone, everyone's personality corresponded to a character on a chessboard. Ooh. And queen and a pawn and a knight or something and you know I don't know but I, yeah, I got about 30,000 words into that book and then I was using my dad's really old laptop that he'd given me from his office or something and one day it just died and I hadn't backed it up and no. it's just gone and I and he I, he actually took it in and like gave it to his IT person and was like is there anything you can do and they're like no it's gone um, oh that's but the worst I don't nightmare yeah, well, I don't think it was a loss to literature, to be honest. I think um, <laughs> I don't know. It sounds like a pretty cool <laughs> idea. <laughs> yeah, it would, uh, yeah, it would probably be horrifying to go back and read that now. But um, but anyway, and then I I joined a, a sort of a writing group with um friends of mine um who also wanted to write, and we were we met for like a good three or four years, I'd say at least, and we met every month, and um, you know, we, we were mostly experimenting. So we did a lot of sort of short stories. We weren't, no, there was, I think there was one guy who was working on a proper novel. So we would always see the new chapter of that. Um, but the rest of us were just going from one project to another and seeing what worked. Um, and anyway, one day that my friend, um, Naomi, it was her turn to host and in advance of the, um, of the session, she said to us, I, I'm gonna send you all a postcard in the post and you have to look at the picture on the postcard and you just have to start writing whatever that inspires in you. So you just look at it and you just sit down and you start writing and it's just, you know, it's an exercise. And exactly. so she sent, yeah, and she sent me, um, she's quite visual, she works in film now, so it kind of makes sense. Um, but she sent me a postcard and it was, I hope I've kept it, I don't know. And it was a woman with a sort of very elaborate hairstyle sitting at a piano looking out and looking quite regal or something. Um, and so I sat down and I started writing and what came out was essentially a middle grade fantasy. Mm. It was the voice of a middle grade fantasy. It was, they were, it was some people like underground and there were strange lights everywhere. And there were, there was a queen, but she was a magical queen. And I had never set out to write fantasy. So you and weren't I, expecting that to come out at all? I wasn't ex no, not at all. It wasn't my plan to write that kind of thing. But it, it just it just came really naturally to me. And I felt really excited writing. I didn't feel like I was trying anymore. Like I was with the, mm. it felt a little bit too much. It always felt a little bit too much like an exercise when I was trying to write my serious sort of adult novel things or whatever it was I was doing. It, I felt like I was trying too hard and this just didn't feel like I was trying. It just sort of seemed to, to spill out. Um, and that was the first thing that I ever wanted to carry on writing. So I did carry on writing that and it, I, you know, I finished it eventually. It was a uh, way too long. I think it was like 80,000 words or something. And, um, yeah, it was, my first draft was 90,000 words. <laughs> yeah. And, and I can, um, I hadn't, I mean, I don't really plot massively, but I hadn't, planned anything about where it would go and I was so attached to every scene I couldn't possibly delete anything so it was just a complete meandering mess really based on some you know uh some quite stereotypical ideas like I had four queens and one was fire and water and earth and air and it was you know it was fine but it was not so I, I never tried to get that um published or anything but um I always thought that I might go back to it and improve it or something and then when I finally in my 30s was in a place to go back to it and improve it I realized I should just start something new at that point um so that was when I started writing the Nowhere Thief but yeah so I didn't in a very long answer to your question I I didn't really start writing Diana Wynne-Jones inspired stuff until and definitely until my 20s 
That's so interesting. So, so you wanted to be a writer since you were in your 20s, but when, when did you start um, your career as a journalist? Uh, it was around the same time. Um, so I think I started uh, my first job in journalism. I was maybe 26, I think, 25, 26. And then I joined the FT when I was 29. Um, and um, and yeah, and I always thought, I always had in the back of my mind that I wanted to go back to writing or, or somehow find the time to do it. Mm -hmm on the side um and that just never really happens because that's I mean I'm really in awe of people that manage to do that like some people you know set their alarms for five in the morning and you know do half an hour's writing before their kids wake up and that kind of thing I just I mean I've tried I can't <laughs> oh yeah no I mean and you know for some people that's the only way that they can write um so I'm you know I'm really in awe of that but I've never found that I was really able to do that um and so the first time that I actually had some headspace to think mm -hmm. about writing again was um, after my daughter was born and I was on maternity leave. Um, and I, yeah, and I just found myself going back to writing. And um, so, and then I started writing The Nowhere Thief then. What was and the then... spark for The Nowhere Thief? What was the, where, the, where were the first inklings of, of that I story? I, I mean... I think I think I like I've realized that I like a concept I like a kind of a high concept where you just have like an elevator pitch where you have one line and it makes you think ooh I wonder what would happen there so it's not you know some people say the character comes to them at first and they're imagining this particular person it's not like that for me it's more like this is the scenario and, and where might that go um and so I was for some reason, I wanted to set it by the seaside. I don't know why. Um, I wanted it to be somewhere like like Lewis. I mean, um, Elspeth lives in a version of Lewis, which is called Lewis B. Um, Lewis actually isn't right on the sea, but Lewis B is on the sea. Um, and I always, I used to go to Lewis a lot when I was younger. And, you know, it's one of those places that people say is built on ley lines. Um, oh. where, like, um, you know, particular points of energy meet and it sort of has a certain magical feel to it um which... I've been to Lewis but now I'm going yeah yeah I mean I, I I don't believe that as such but I love the idea of that mm -hmm. um so I I knew that and then I also knew that I wanted um the girl to be going to other worlds and and then so I, I guess I just sort of started imagining her life in the seaside town going to other worlds there was some danger involved and and then I had the idea that she would be taking things back with her bringing things back from other worlds and then I, I I don't know I think I thought what would make that scenario interesting and I thought if she was selling the things and then it seemed to make and then I liked the idea of like a sleepy antiques shop and then mm. I thought and then the shop might be struggling and um and so it all came together in that way but I didn't know how it was all going to pan out I didn't know you know the rest of it and I just started writing it I didn't know who she was going to meet I didn't even know what she was going to find out about herself or her family at the beginning that that really wasn't in my mind when I started writing I just started with that and I just took it from there and I wrote I did write it quite a few different times so um it went in many different directions the first half was always the same and then the second half would really change in terms of what happened to all of the characters but but the things that stayed the same were the the characters were always the same people and they always sort of wanted the same things it was more the circumstances around them that would change um so I guess 
the plot would change, but the characters and the ideas didn't change, if that makes sense. It's so reassuring to me because it sounds like exactly, like I'm like a few months behind you where I'm like, the first half of my novel has never changed, but the second half has changed every single time I've done a a rewrite. So yeah, yeah, it's really reassuring to know that that you were having similar problems and that you produce something as wonderful as the No Her Thief. Thank you. I don't know about that. I mean, I think you know you have a lot of opinions after a certain point as well, don't you? You you have, yeah. So I got an agent. Um, you know, she said it's not quite working in the second half, and so I kept trying to think of ways that would make it work while not quite knowing what wasn't making it work. You know, you don't. You don't yeah. always know. It's not obvious what the problem is sometimes. Um, and then you know publishers said that as well and and but eventually you just hit on something and, and people are like oh yeah that works <laughs> you don't really know quite why or certainly maybe not with your first book maybe after a while you're like oh I know exactly what's going to work um but I definitely it was a bit of a oh I don't know kind of trial and error almost like mm-hmm. yeah like what about this version or do you like this like and then I mean I liked all of them so I didn't mind um and it was it was really, I, I mean, I feel like I've written six books or something at this point, because I kept writing that one so many different times. And they were always quite different books. Um, but you yeah. learn something every time about yeah, how exactly. to tell a story and yeah, where, where a story goes wrong or how to structure a, how or like what the shape of a story can be. Yeah. And I think and that and that has been a real lesson. Like I think I mentioned with with the first book I wrote that I didn't try to get published. I I was so attached to all of my scenes and all of my chapters that the thought of deleting anything just because it wasn't going in the right direction was was impossible and I decided before I started writing The Nowhere Thief I decided to be absolutely ruthless about that and I was like mm-hmm. not working and ditching it so there are a few times when I would get like 10,000 words in in and just be like nope this is just not working just gonna start the whole story again um and yeah just I think you've just got to be ruthless and what you know while telling yourself that everything you're writing is does have value um it's helping you to to learn about your characters more or whatever it is but yeah and it's all that kind of like under the iceberg underneath the like it's yeah what's under the water of the kind of the the iceberg that is the novel that's eventually produced all of that stuff and the water supports it yeah and if you think I mean I, I don't think I have any way of calculating it but if you know I think the nowhere thief ended up being say 58,000 words I would say that the the material on the cuttings floor is probably maybe another 250,000 or yeah. something yeah. all the time I wrote scenes and discarded them um yeah which is a bit crazy when you think about it well, I think that's probably a lot of people's stories that's probably how a lot of yeah, most novels get written mm. um when you were writing The Know Her Thief because we've talked about Diana Wynne-Jones as a, a major influence when you were writing The Nowhere Thief, did you have ideas of the kind of books that would be its literary siblings, like books from your childhood that you were like, I would love The Nowhere Thief to sit alongside those kind of books in your imagination and the imagination of your readers? Or was that uh, not something that I was don't at the forefront I, of your mind? I don't think I thought about it in that mm. way. I think that would have meant... <laughs> Too much comparison. Or, or maybe that, but also... I don't know, the idea that I might be writing into a literary canon would have felt mm. dating. So I probably was just, I, I mean, my main goal when I started writing was was mostly to finish a book because it's really hard. <laughs> it is. Um, you know, you can, everyone can start a book and then it's just, you know, perseverance and 
so they say like 99% perspiration, mm. 1% inspiration, but you know, I really did find that you've just got to keep going and you've got to finish the thing. Um, so that was my main goal. Um, and, and I was aware of my influences. I was aware of what I was sort of hearkening back to. Um, so what were those? I mean, it would have been, it would have been just Diana and Jones. Diana and Jones. She's, yeah. She's the I big mama. She really is. Yeah. I mean, there was some, you know, I did, I, there are some other books that I that really stayed with me that I really loved. And I think I was thinking about why did I love those books? And they tend to they tend to involve a kind of a perspective shift mm. or something really quite startling happening at the end, which I seem to like that. And I do have there are elements of that in The Nowhere Thief as well. Um, so one, for example, is um, it was actually in, in a short story anthology that was edited by Diana Wynne-Jones. Um, and it was called um, Hidden Turnings, the, the anthology. And she had a story in it. I don't remember the story that she wrote in it, but the story that really stuck with me um, was by Lisa Tuttle, and it was called The Walled Garden. And um, it's, again, I don't know if I should give a spoiler. I mean, this, again, was written ages ago, uh, but the spoiler is quite... I don't know if I can... I, I think I might have to talk about it while telling you the spoiler, if that's okay. Okay, yeah, go on. <laughs> Um, again, don't uh, listen if you might ever read this, but um, so it's called The Walled Garden and it's about a, a young girl who's maybe five and she, again, it's kind of a portal thing or maybe a time, well, it's a time travel thing. And she goes, she goes to the bottom of the garden and without realizing it, she's gone through some sort of time travel portal and she Amazing. sees, she sees this woman and this man and looking at each other in the garden and they suddenly kiss I think they kiss and she realizes that what she's seeing is absolute pure love and she somehow realizes that the woman that she's looking at is herself oh. and the woman turns and looks at her and she runs away and then she grows up thinking knowing just feeling so happy and certain that whatever else happens to her in life she's going to find this person that she loves and it's going to be a very pure form of love and then um and and almost and almost sort of ignores other parts of her life because she knows that's happening. I think you know it's definitely had it's a huge influence on her life. This mm -hmm. this this knowledge that this is going to happen to her at some point. And then one day she's and then she has a sister. They're very close. And one day she's at her sister's um, at, in the garden for a barbecue or something. And she wanders down into the garden, and she looks up and she sees this little girl looking at her, and she realizes it's herself. And next to her, there's this man and he touches her on the shoulder and she turns around and looks at him and it's her sister's husband. Oh. <laughs> and she real and and she is, I think, they are in love with each other. Or there's this, but there's this moment of horror, really, where she realizes that what she thought she saw was perhaps it was real love, but it was not remotely as simple or anything like that as as she ever would have thought and it's just that sort of vertigo feeling of like yeah oh, you know um which really stuck with me oh that. that's amazing that's an amazing story yeah that, that's <laughs> quite, it's quite a grown-up story isn't it it is quite grown-up yeah I mean yeah I mean it is grown-up but and yet you maybe I read it when I was a little bit older but I think when you're even when you're young you can I think certainly I could appreciate this idea that you might be in love with someone I didn't know what it meant obviously but I think you're still affected by those kind of romantic ideas. Yeah. Well, and not fully. 
because it's also make I, uh, that that idea that she ignored other parts of her life because she knew this this one yes, thing was happening. I think, yeah. yeah, that's that's really interesting, and that's I think something that's really useful to kind of think about at a very early age. That um, yeah, that it's better not to to know what's coming and to embrace everything as fully as you can. Yeah, rather yeah. than have this kind of idea that you're heading towards this one goal yeah. that actually mightn't turn out to be exactly what you thought it was yeah no definitely yeah it, yeah you could definitely read it as a lesson I think I think I just like the the poignancy of the of the sort of the world falling apart around you and yeah. realizing nothing was as you thought it was that you hadn't you hadn't understood things correctly or yeah. this you know, what reality was one way and actually this is what reality is like like the matrix or something <laughs> yeah because it's a story about growing up as well isn't it it's like seeing <laughs> seeing like a moment from your future and or like that that movement into the future but it's not quite what you think it is yeah um and then another one that I would sort of put in that category of of the perspective shift is um is Tom's Midnight Garden ah uh, I love that <laughs> by Philippa Pierce and um I loved it so much that when it finished, I couldn't accept that it was over. And I wrote a letter to Philippa Pierce and I begged her <laughs> another book. And she wrote back. <gasps> did she? Yes. I was just saying to my mom, did we keep the letter? And I don't know if we did, which was oh, no. an error. But um, And she wrote back and said she never planned to write a sequel, but she thought that I should write a sequel. Um, what a lovely you know, letter. Like nine at the time or something. But I, you know, I remember receiving permission from Philippa Pierce to write a sequel. So maybe I'll. Uh... Oh my God, that's amazing. Yeah, you, you've got permission from Philippa Pierce to write the sequel to Tom's Midnight Gardens. That's your next book. Yeah, definitely do. Or at least some fan fiction around it or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but what I, I mean, obviously it's a fantastic book in, in many ways, but I, but I also liked that, um, that realisation that, you know, the old woman that lives in the house is his childhood playmates yeah. and going back and playing with her the whole time and yeah there's just something quite amazing about that I thought and again I guess that's a, a time travel one um but you know yeah I just think that that realization when things weren't as he thought they were mm -hmm. is quite yeah and that like the world that you're living in like falls into place in a different way because of yeah. something that you've just discovered that everything looks slightly differently yeah yeah and I have and I do have there is a moment like that in the nowhere thief where there's mm. this you know quite a big reveal um later in the book and she I, I imagine her experiencing that similar sense of vertigo of like hang on what you know no we definitely won't give any spoilers about that you have to go and read <laughs> nowhere thief to find out what that is mm. um were there any books that you think might have like changed the course of your life or influenced later decisions or books that gave you a similar kind of perspective shift and made you see the world in a different way? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I wonder, I wonder if some books did make me think about love in a way I'm, I'm thinking I mean I am thinking of that book The Walled Garden mm -hmm. um, and then I'm also thinking about um, Fire and Hemlock by Diana oh, Winter yeah. one of the few sort of it would probably be classed as YA now I imagine mm -hmm. um, I don't know if the categories were that strict back then um, but but that that concerns 
an older protagonist who is she like maybe 15 in the book or something yeah, I think so yeah older and, and or she grows up over the like yeah she like gets you see yeah, her she's yeah. an adult by the end isn't she just about yeah and, um, and maybe yeah she she's about 16 at the end or something yeah, yeah. well I think she's older than that is she older but than she, that yeah and then there's this this older man that she's always kind of been in love with mm-hmm. although maybe that's a bit maybe that's a bit um problematic these days actually because I think she starts being in love with him when she's about 13 or 14 he's definitely he's definitely an adult, an adult yeah <laughs> um but, but uh yeah this idea of sort of um someone that you're destined to be with I think I think that had a hold on me for probably way too long um this idea that th- things would be preordained or that things would somehow be that you would definitely have the answer or that you would have some knowledge and you know the idea of soulmates I think all of those ideas were quite powerful with me when I was younger and I'm, mm-hmm. I don't think that helpful really yeah um, it comes to actual relationships um but th- sorry that sounds like I'm jaded I'm not at all I'm <laughs> very uh happily uh about to get married this summer actually but oh, um congratulations yes and uh yeah definitely um ticks all those boxes but uh but I think I think I only found that when I stopped trying to look for it almost yeah uh, I think a lot of a lot of the early stuff that I read made me feel that that I should expect it um but yeah, and, and even even in children's books you know that you do still have those ideas in children's books of, mm-hmm. of pure love or true love but without I think when you read it as a child you have no idea what any of it means but you just latch on to this sort of idea of there being some certainty mm-hmm. yeah you kind of internalize this idea that like yeah you, you'll meet the person you'll know and then everything is played sailing <laughs> yeah 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 exactly don't really I mean I think they should have like I think schools should introduce I mean maybe they they are doing it these days but like proper lessons about how to have relationships with people that would be a great idea yeah not just sex education stuff which obviously mm-hmm. you need that as well, but really like you know this is why you might feel jealous or this is why mm-hmm. you know just trying to understand emotions around relationships I think would really help so many people because oh. most people have no idea what's going on yeah like we're, we're all just scrambling around in the dark yeah. <laughs> were there any other were there any other books that were there any books that influenced your career as a journalist do you think or um I mean I think my career as a journalist uh has been I mean I still am a journalist so I'm writing about sustainable investment and mm-hmm. climate change um so but I, I did sort of fall into journalism in my 20s because I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do but I knew that I wanted to do something with with words mm-hmm. um, I was looking at maybe jobs in publishing um and then you know this job in journalism came up and I thought oh yeah you know writing things that getting paid for it that sounds good um and so it sort of went from there really um uh so I don't know if anything I read made me become a journalist but I did or climate change were there books that with I, I was touched on reason, climate change yeah well the I mean the reason I wrote the book that I did on climate change uh, a couple of years ago um what was this sort of desire to not feel helpless about climate change and to kind of take matters into my own hand mm-hmm. hands um and also sort of not liking all of the 
that sounds too um, dismissive. I was going to say all of the doom and gloom around climate change, but it's there for a very good reason, which is that things are very worrying and we need to feel stressed about it, obviously, because we need to, to do more than we're doing currently. But um, yeah, we, we also need to have a sense that we can do something. Yes, it, to restore a certain sense mm -hmm. of agency, I guess. Um, and so, you know, I guess I guess you could say that, that there's something something in that, something in, in terms of trying to, you know, look at a tricky situation and, and take back control yourself a little bit in some way, um, that that's, that's a kind of a common story that you have in children's books where, you know, everything is going terribly wrong for the, for the hero or the heroine and, um, and then they have to work out the solution by themselves, kind of solve things. But uh, I'm just, I'm just thinking of that as we talk. I don't think that was a, <laughs> a conscious influence. Have you read, this is a slight tangent, well, not really a tangent because Diana Wynne-Jones has been the thread running throughout this conversation. Have you read Diana Wynne-Jones's um, book of essays on writing called Reflections? I have read some of them and actually, I yes, no. So I was going to, I was, what was it? Um, so, yeah, that, it was really, I was thinking about this. I was, we mentioned earlier that, you know, you think some of these books are they a bit problematic now um and you you know some of them I haven't reread since I was a child so I don't know and you don't always notice it when you're a, a kid you know mm -hmm. reading it so many years ago you wouldn't but sometimes when you reread stuff now you're like oh okay um that would not get published these days or certainly that bit would have been edited mm -hmm. um and she and so Diana when Jones wrote in one of those essays um I think it was in 1981 I remember tweeting about it when I read it but and she said that if if she wants her character to be neutral, it has to be a boy. Yeah, I remember that. Said, um, if it was a girl, the only way that a girl would be neutral, bearing in mind she was writing in 1981, would be if the girl was a tomboy, um, which, you know, isn't a term that you would use these days uh, for various reasons. But um, yeah, and and I thought, wow, things have changed there, I mm. think. Like, yeah. I mean, I hope they have. Do you think they have? I mean, I feel like you could write. I mean, it's, it's an issue, isn't it? Because boys... You know, there's all of these studies around showing that boys stop reading at a certain age and girls mm. will read for longer. So, and, and and they do say that if you have a boy as a main character, that might then end up appealing to boys more. It might almost help them to, to read more because they don't want to read. I, but I don't know. Is that true? I don't really know. The, the book that I'm writing now, well, I'm doing kind of two ones simultaneously, but they're both, they both have boys as the main character. That's not deliberate. I just wanted to write a different kind of person. Yeah, I don't know if that, I mean, I think when Diana Wynne Jones wrote that, and and I think she wrote later that she changed her mind about that. that oh, was, okay, okay. Yeah, Good. that she, like, the, the the further on in her career she went, she realised, and, and I think Ursula Le Guin said a similar, had a kind of a similar trajectory as well that said, like, she hadn't even thought about the fact that she was just kind of writing male characters as a default, and then later, like, made a conscious decision not to do that. Mm. Um, and Diana Wynne Jones feel like that might be an essay towards the end of that reflections book where she looks back on that earlier essay and says I thought that at that particular time mm. but I realized that I was being kind of influenced by the kind of general consensus around gender roles and how children respond to um, gendered characters in books and that's changed now um, and I don't think I hope that we're not in a place where the male is a neutral character anymore. Um, yeah, I hope so too. <laughs> yeah, I think Diana Wynne-Jones like recognised the 
the era there. And I think when is Howells moving castle? Because that's later. And that I think that's from her period of time when she's like writing female characters. Yeah. And I mean, that's I mean, that's also a kind of I mean, that's a love story as well. So mm-hmm. I don't know if you classed maybe as YA now. Um, I mean, Sophie, the main character is she is an adult, right? When the book starts, well, she and her sisters, they're all being sent off to be apprentices. Yeah, they're definitely teenagers. They're all older, yeah. She might be 18 already. I feel like it's when you're eight, when you hit 18, you go to be an apprentice. Possibly, I don't, I don't. Her younger sister was maybe 16 or something, but I'm pretty sure that she is a young adult herself when she goes to to work for Hal. Um, And then of course, falls in love with him and, um, you know, they end up together, which is, sorry, that's a massive spoiler, but I'm assuming. (laughs) (laughs) Big spoiler alert (laughs) at the beginning of this podcast. I was also madly in love with Hal myself because although he would have been an absolute nightmare, can you imagine actually having a relationship with him? I know, complete nightmare. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Are there any books that you're reading right now that are kind of particularly speaking to you? Um, I'm reading, uh, so because I've got a bit of time off um, from work, I've actually taken a year off um, as book leave this year to kind of see how the writing goes and um, some sort of writing about sustainable investment on a freelance basis at the moment. Um, So I've been doing a lot of catch up reading, I would say. Um, I've been doing... um, I've been reading a lot of really fun YA murder mysteries. I've been doing, you know, Holly Jackson at the mm. moment. I'm reading One of Us is Lying by Karen McManus. Um, I read, uh, actually, um, you know, one of the um, people in our debut 2023 groups, um, Ravina Guran. She oh, yeah. got two books out this I year. I know. Amazing. And one of them is a, a YA, uh, This Book Kills. Yeah, uh, which I haven't read it yet, but it looks amazing. Oh, no, it's it's really fun. And it's, you know, it's a, a murder mystery set in a, a boarding school. Um, and then the other one that she did was The Thief of Farrowfell, which is, um, you know, about uh, a thief who can steal magic, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's younger. That's like a middle grade book. Um, so those were really fun. So I, I think I'm I'm making a real effort to like to keep up to date with everything that's happening now. Um, and I'm also having a lot of fun reading really dark adult novels as well. Um, <laughs> which, uh, definitely drawn to that. Um, I think I, when I, after after my Diana Wynne Jones period, I got absolutely obsessed. This is when I was younger with Anne Rice. Oh um, yeah. That, that was like Interview with the Vampire, all of those books. And then she wrote lots of other quite even weirder books than that, um, which I was, really obsessed with um and yeah so definitely gave me a kind of a taste for the dark stuff Ooh, so two questions here so one is which you've kind of talked a little bit about it already but what's coming next from you and what kind of books do you think you want to that you might imagine yourself writing in the future like do you think you'd write something like Anne Rice yeah so I think I I mean I'd like to go I mean I I'd like to go darker I think um so I might I can partly why I'm reading a lot of YA at the moment as well. Um, but I I would really like to write into the space, which is kind of, sometimes they call it clean teen, which mm-hmm. I don't think is quite right as in terms of describing it. But you know that the children's book market is very, very distincted, distinctively divided between yeah. middle grade and young adults. And the cutoff point is about 12. And so, and you see it in bookshops, they're like, here's our eight to 12 section. Um, and that's where you're going to have, you know, the nowhere thief fits in there. Mm-hmm. And I, I really enjoy writing for that age. And it's, you know, definitely uh, the two things I'm writing at the moment are very much in the same genre. Um, 
but I would also like to write a little bit darker, but not necessarily, I don't want to write about, you know, murder. Um, I don't think I have a murder mystery in me, uh, but I, I don't necessarily want to write about, I don't want to write about kind of crazy fantasy like dragons and stuff. I don't feel like that's my thing either, but I, I do enjoy someone called the Nowhere Thief, like science fiction fantasy. Mm-hmm. And I thought, yeah, I quite like that idea of that. Yeah, that, that feels right to me. Um, so I'd like to write about, I really, so I just recently read Lockwood and Co. Um, I've never read it, but I'm watching the TV series. Yes, well, that's how I came across it because it came out on Netflix and then I realized that it was a, a book series. So I read the first book in the series and I thought, now this feels like a really nice area for me because the, mm-hmm. the main protagonist, Lucy, is 15 and there, there's a little romantic tension between her and um, and the boy that she works with. But it's certainly in the first book, there's nothing, nothing actually happens. Um, and I thought that's that's my level of, you know, like it's it's mostly about the the ghosts and the ghoul and the adventures that they're going on. And there's a little bit of tension. Um, and I think that's about my my level, which I guess you would call young YA or... Yeah, there needs, need, there needs to be a different label than clean teen. Clean teen is a terrible label. It's not right at all. I know yeah. it's... it's exactly, but no teenager is going to be like, clean teen, I want that. They're not going to go to that shelf. They're no. Gonna, exactly. um, but that is the problem. Like when, when you're too old for middle grade books, which can come when you're like 11 or 12 already... Yeah but you don't really want to read the YA stuff and you just yeah. sort of you know, floundering around wondering what to do. I mean, I started reading Stephen King at that age and that's so dark. Like mm-hmm. it's like still scarring some of the stuff I read when I was oh probably- God, I was not brave enough to read that. Well, yeah, my brother was really into them and he was younger than me, but um, yeah, just really, really scarring stuff that has stayed with me that I almost like watching a horror film because the books are so vivid and so dark. Um, but yeah, that was definitely a bit much for me. And can you talk about the two things that you're writing at the moment, or is that a bit secret? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the rules are around that, to be honest. Um, I mean, I don't know. Uh, it better be safe. Yeah, I, I probably, I don't know. I probably can't talk about them, actually. Um, okay. But, but they're, they're, suffice to say, they're, they're both fantasies, they're, but they both involve, you know, travelling to other worlds and they're both a bit dark well they sound excellent (laughs) i can't believe we are already at our hour (laughs) i think we've gone slightly over but alice this is so fantastic to talk to you i could talk i could just continue to talk to you i and i really wanted to talk to you about and maybe we can talk about this really briefly but your experiences of being a debut children's author how have you found i mean it's it's three months isn't it since your new novel came out how's it been it's been great um you know I my publisher Nosy Crow just did such a fantastic job of getting the book out there and making sure people knew about it and um so it's been amazing you know seeing it in bookshops yeah and if if listeners if you haven't seen it it is the most beautiful book it has got such a gorgeous cover myself and Alice were talking about it before we started recording the podcast but it is a book that lives at the cover that lives up to a book or a book that lives up to a cover it's it's beautiful (laughs) thank you well that's that those are that is high praise indeed because the cover is absolutely amazing I mean when I saw it I was like wow it's sparkly and it has raised gold letters and it's just uh, great really beautiful um so my three-year-old picked it up he was like oh read this mommy uh, I was like, yeah, yeah, like, not yet yeah. <laughs> um uh and then and then I've just I've really enjoyed doing the school visits like some authors mm-hmm. don't 
enjoy doing those understandably like I don't think it's a necessary uh combination of of traits that you know if you're a writer you're not necessarily someone that also wants to stand in front of a group of hundreds of people and talk but these days that's what you're expected to do as a writer you're expected to be able to to hold a room full of people and talk about your writing um but um so some people really don't enjoy doing it but I found that I really enjoy doing it I really really like it actually that's I've got a whole very good at it well I don't know but I've got a whole load of school visits lined up um next week but for example like I've, I've done public speaking before as a journalist and it's so funny like when you when you say at the end like any questions from the audience and everyone's just so <laughs> you know they're just sort of looking right maybe you get one question a sort of a reluctant question that someone's doing just all, almost to fill the awkward sort of um silence but with the kids it's everyone's hand is up oh. people are upset if they're not allowed to ask like five questions many people ask more than one question it's it's just so great the energy so I, that's been a really pleasant surprise how much I enjoy doing the school visits oh brilliant oh um unfortunately we're gonna have to bring this magical and wonderful and wide-ranging chat to an end um and I just want to say thank you so much, Alice, for, for coming on the podcast and talking to us about the Noah Thief. And listeners, if you haven't read the Noah Thief, go and buy it, not just for its cover. It is an excellent, magical, wonderful story. Um, and yeah, if you're a fan of Diana and Jones, you'll really enjoy Alice's book. Um, so thank you, Alice. And yeah, if you're if you're a fan of the podcast and you still listen to the podcast make sure that you rate and review the podcast on your um, your podcast platform of choice and we will be back next week with another story-shaped guest so for the moment it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from <laughs> sorry it's goodbye from me thank you so much for having me it was really really a pleasure oh thank you oh, goodbye everyone you've been listening to story shaped with susan cahill and Sinead O'Hart. Follow us on Twitter at StoryShapedPod and don't forget to subscribe on the streaming service of your choice so that you never miss an episode. Music by Tony Betts.